0: Today we'll be reading out of 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11 Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. This is the word of the Lord.
1: About six years ago, I, uh, I was in community college and I was taking a class on the New Testament, and that class <clears throat> was uh, was taught, and I was learning, and I remember learning a lot of things in there. There was one thing in particular that began in that class uh, that ended up lasting much, much longer than that. I, I had an instructor who, <clears throat> when she would teach, she was telling us about the New Testament, and... It was the intro to New Testament. And she began to talk about how the New Testament, since it was written by men, it was written by fallible men, the the New Testament isn't entirely accurate. She said, as a matter of fact, the Old Testament isn't entirely accurate. And I remember being about 22, 21 at the time, and I, I, never, I never heard this, you know, I'd always just, I'd grown up in church and always just assumed that what the Bible says is true, but I never heard this idea that the that scripture could be inaccurate, and that's what I began being taught. And it was at that point, a 21, 22-year-old uh, guy who was seeking to learn more about what he believes began to question, okay, is, is the Bible then accurate? Can I believe what the Bible says to be true? And then fast forward a couple of semesters, I, I go to App State, and while at App State, have a professor, first semester there, intro or foundations of human communication, loved the class, and he uh, he began to um, just throw in these ideas while he was teaching, and through the guys he had us reading, guys like Neil Postman and Frederick Nietzsche and, and other guys like that, these guys he had us reading, he... Uh, we began reading this material, and he would teach in such a way that would captivate you. And what I didn't know at the time was that he was um, an atheist who, one of his goals, I believe, he never said this, one of his goals was to take people who had some kind of faith and just erode it or eradicate it. And I remember uh, knowing that I I, I place a high value on education and and love education. I remember him saying the first day of class, he said, "I, I, I got my undergrad at, at Indiana or something like that. He said, and then I did my master somewhere else. And then I did a, a lot of my doctoral work at Oxford. And I remember, you know, thinking smart people go to Oxford. And I was like, okay, this guy is, is just brilliant. Anything he's going to say is going to have some level of truth. And I remember I would go to his uh, office sometimes to ask about a paper and he would look at me and he, he began to say, <clears throat> you know, Adrian, like you seem interested in this stuff. What is it you plan on doing after college? So well I was planning on going to seminary, you know, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, and I remember the day he was he sat back in his seat and he said, Let's let's reconsider that. And I remember thinking, if this guy tells me to reconsider, I'm gonna at least at least consider it, you know. And he said, he said, why don't you think about the potential of maybe uh Princeton divinity or, or Duke divinity? And at the time, I was, just wanted to laugh at him because I was like, man, those people would laugh at my transcript, much less you know, even ask me to come to a visit. And he was like, no, he said, you know, I think you should go somewhere that might open your mind a little more than where it is you plan on going. And what I didn't realize at the time was that he was trying to take what faith in God that I have and say, you need to put that to the side and open your mind to things that are actually real. And I remember that time, 2010, about five and a half years ago, the first semester, I remember this this time in my life where I spent about four to five months wondering. Wondering is what the Bible says based on the instructor that I had, and now based on what this guy's teaching me, is what the Bible says true? Is 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 anything? If so, what what is true? Which parts do you choose? Because I remember thinking, if, if there are parts of the Bible that are not true and then parts of the Bible that are, how do we know what's truth and what's not? Therefore, I begin to develop this idea, okay, if my faith in Scripture ends up eroding, then my faith in the gospel of Jesus will follow. Because ultimately, if you begin to think that Scripture is fallible and that it is errant, it has errors, then you can start begin to question, okay, which part's actually true and which, which is not, so therefore, is the resurrection what we're going to be focusing on this morning, is it even true? Because it seems kind of far out there that some guy would die and he would go into a grave and three days later he would come back. That seems kind of preposterous. And I began to have those doubts. So much so that it began to grip me and I was just like, I don't know what in the world to do until God just, just miraculously brought me to this passage. I remember reading it because in in Scripture this is known as the resurrection passage because if you look at your subtitles in your Bible, maybe I have the ESV, it says the resurrection of Christ, the next one for next week, the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of the body, and it just goes on. It's known as the resurrection chapter. And I remember God brought me to this passage along with other resources, like a book, The Reason for God by Tim Keller. God used that in an awesome way in my life, but God brought me to this passage And as we get into it this morning, I want to share later what God taught me through this that was able to restore my faith, not only in scripture, but it was able to restore my faith in the gospel. You may sit here this morning and you have dealt with doubt before. Maybe you're dealing with it now. Maybe you ask the question, is Jesus who he says he was? He claimed to be God. Is he that? Maybe you've heard or have thought this. Could he have really come back from the dead? You say, hey, I've never seen that happen. Somebody, somebody would, be, would be in the grave for several days and then come back. Maybe you just want to know, do we have good proof of his resurrection? Now, while this passage is not going to comprehensively answer every single question that you have about the Christian faith, I believe we can answer from this text those questions. Paul's dealing with an issue in the Corinthian church that if not, res- not uh, fixed and addressed will undermine everything these people believe. You know, we've been through 1 Corinthians now in the last few weeks and Paul's just dealing with another issue. And it almost seems like that Paul in this book, if you've been with us during this series, has just dealt with issue after issue after issue. He's like, you guys cannot get it right. Oftentimes, like us, you know, we read the Bible and we're like, wow, it just seems like I'm getting it wrong, but the Bible tells us what is right. But one of the issues Paul is dealing with is that the Corinthians believe there is life after death, but they do not believe in a resurrected body. Look at verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 15. This tells us, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? It's the reason Paul spends a whole chapter in this book talking about the resurrected body, the resurrected Christ, the resurrection from the dead, because popular in their culture was this idea that Jesus, um, maybe he did die, but then when he arose from the, from the grave and people saw him, it was just an illusion. It wasn't actually a real physical body, it was just an illusion. And that was, that was one of the major thoughts in the first century. And I would say while in the uh, first century, uh, the 21st century, we don't have that particular same problem, we have issues that maybe we face that are different but very similar to the Corinthians not believing in the resurrection of the dead. If you ever watch the History Channel, before, uh, I used to watch the History Channel before all they would ever show was like Pawn Stars. You know, back when it was actually good material, I would watch the History, some of you are like, I like Pawn Stars, you know, but like you, you watch that. And it was actually good. And I remember I would see some TV shows and one of them a couple years ago was called The Real Jesus. And the whole premise of that show was uh, to point out flaws in the Gospels to say, no, Jesus isn't who the Gospel writer says he was. And we can tell you why. CNN last year had a a, a special on that ran for a while called Finding Jesus, Fact, Faith, Forgery. This whole show had the premise and had the idea that much of what we're told about Jesus in the Bible is misunderstood, that what really happened in the life of Jesus, things that are scandalous and questionable, and I'll just be honest with you, I don't know why I watch these shows because I get so upset, you know, because like when I, this is, this is stuff that like I'm very interested in, obviously, but I love um, taking God's word and showing how it, it, it is not only like meshes together and how there aren't contradictions like many people think they are. I love doing that. But then when I watch shows like this, they'll say something and it sounds like it's so true. And they'll go to commercial and you never hear the opposite of, of, of what that person's saying. You never hear the counter argument. And that just frustrates me. I just want to tell you that. Um, maybe you've read or heard uh, something called the Da Vinci Code. Uh, this came out several years ago. And the author Dan Brown wants to, he, he wanted to put forth the idea that the Catholic Church sought to um, hide much of who Jesus really was. That he wasn't who we read about. Instead, they, they later changed many things about his life to put forth this lie that we all believe. Maybe you've read and seen TV shows um, where people, or you've talked to and people say Jesus was simply a man. He wasn't God, though. Or you've heard the idea that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene. Ideas like that the Bible was put together by a pagan Roman emperor or that the Bible was, uh, with, uh, the books that were put in the Bible were put together all at one time and it was by this guy who wanted to put forth his own political agenda and he left the other ones out. Maybe you've heard the Gospels were edited later so that people could make Jesus who they wanted him to be. Paul's dealing with issues similar to this. Bart Ehrman is somebody you you, you may have heard of, maybe not. Um, He influences hundreds of lives each semester. The University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, he's one of the leading New Testament professors in the world. But he happens to be agnostic. He doesn't know for sure if there is a God. And one thing that he does often in his his class um, is... He'll get them all together, first day of class, and he'll say, how many of you are Christians? Many, many people raise their hand out of a couple hundred, you know, intro to New Testament. He'll say, how many of you have ever read the Bible? Most, all of those raise their hand. He said, how many of you read the Bible every day? Fewer raise their hands. He'll say, how many of you have ever read the entire Bible? And very few times does anybody raise their hand. And he says, so you're telling me, if you believe that book is the inspired word of God— you're not reading it. You really must not believe that it's God's word. And at the first day of class, the first thing he says, his whole goal is to take people's faith who is real because they're not, they don't have to read the Bible every day in order to be saved, but he takes people's faith who is real and wants to begin to erode it and say, if you don't read the Bible, you don't believe that. And he's one of the leading New Testament professors in the world. He has a few New York Times bestseller books. And one of those, uh, I had to kind of read it for a class one time to to do something else with that book and another book. And his whole idea in most of his books is to point out this, that the resurrection story of Jesus is made up. It was made up by his disciples so they could seek some kind of authority. Why in the world would he want to try to disprove the resurrection? Because if the resurrection is true, then what we're going to find out this morning, if the resurrection is true, what we read about Christ in Scripture must be true. At 22 years old, I was a guy searching for, for answers. I, I, I liked uh, discussing different ideas like this. And it was ideas like Ehrman. You know, I didn't even know who he was at the time. But some people like him putting forth these ideas that begin to cause my faith to erode. And their whole idea is to get you to see that Jesus isn't who he says he is or who he claimed to be. But then some of you are like, you know, I I don't really get into those kind of academic discussions. They're kind of cool, I guess, for some people. But the people I see at work, they could care less if Jesus is who he says he was. They're just trying to get off of work, man, and they're trying to get to the weekend. But here's the thing, this passage isn't just speaking to people who want to argue doctrine. This passage is speaking to you because those people that you work with, maybe you're sitting in here this morning and you don't know Christ. If this passage is not true of Christ, then there is no hope for you. But if Jesus did come back from the dead, there is hope for you. There is hope for your coworker who doesn't know Jesus. There is hope for this world. And that's what I want us to see this morning. This passage is the foundation of what we believe in Christianity. It is the foundation of what we believe in Christianity. We can't celebrate the death and crucifixion of Jesus without equally celebrating the resurrection. So this morning we'll see two truths. First is, the resurrection is the primary mark of the gospel. Paul says this, verse 1, I would remind you. In other words, he's saying, I spoke something to you. I want to make sure you understand. I will remind you, brothers, of the gospel in which I preached to you. Verse 3, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what you also received. What is he saying? He's saying, If I could say anything to you, if I could say just one thing, I, I could say so many things to you. I've already told so many things to you, but if I could say one thing to you, I want to remind you of the gospel of Jesus. So that begs the question, what is the gospel of Jesus? Paul's going to lay out a little more uh, in verses 3 through 5, but I want to actually turn to Ephesians 2 for us for a second. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, in a very comprehensive 10-verse way, what the gospel is. It says, and you, that's me and you, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, At the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience, we were following evil desires. We were living out the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body, and we were by nature children of wrath. This is not good. When we see that, the gospel first, before we ever get to the good news, which is what gospel means, we've actually got to see what's so bad. We were separated. Some of you this morning still are. We were separated from God. But then look at verse four in Ephesians two, or I can read it to you. But God, being rich in mercy, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, like if you, if you, let me just read that again. Even when we were dead. It doesn't say when you clean your life up. It doesn't say when you finally began uh, uh, doing things around your house that you thought would be good. It says when you were dead in your sin. When When you were by nature a child of wrath, it says, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of your own doing, it is a gift from God. The gospel is that you were dead in your sin, but Jesus came to this earth to die for you in your place so that when you trust him and you trust that what he's done on the cross is enough to forgive your sin, you are saved and made alive with him. That's the gospel. Paul says, if I could say anything to you, that would be it. There's nothing else I need to say. Look at, I'll read verse 10 to you. For we are God's workmanship. Once we're made alive, it's it's, it's not over. God makes us his masterpiece in which we were created to do good works. God has made us alive. And Paul says, if there's anything that I can tell you, it's that. If there's anything that I could speak to you, It's that if there's anything I can speak to you this morning, we'll get into some cool stuff in just a minute. But if there's anything this morning that I could tell you, it is that Jesus Christ has died for you. And it's not because you are good, it's because of how good he is. That's the one thing that Paul wants to get across. So the gospel is um, God rescuing, God redeeming humanity. But then the gospel also is a reality of history. Look at verse 3. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised in accordance with the scriptures. Paul's wanting to make sure he's saying, look, the gospel isn't just this spiritual idea that, that th- this uh, kind of symbolic way Jesus took away your death, Jesus took away your sin. No, the gospel is actually something that really, truly happened. And he makes that clear to us in two ways. The first one is that he says Jesus died, was buried, and resurrected in accordance with the scriptures. In accordance, it, it says this Paul is trying to say that, look, everything in the Old Testament, he doesn't try to point out these little details of the Old Testament. He's saying the whole comprehensive story of the Old Testament points to a coming Savior. Everything, the Gospels tell us about the life of Jesus, and everything after the Gospels from Acts to Revelation point to how we ought to live now and point to what's to come. The Bible, as one story, is about one man, and his name is Jesus. Paul says Christ died. He was buried. Notice he threw that in. He was buried. He didn't just say he died and left it there. He said, no, he was put in a tomb because he's wanting to make another point in just a second. He died, was buried, and resurrected in accordance with the scriptures. So what does this tell us about God's word? It tells us that the the gospel wasn't just something that God thought up and thought, man, these people are dead in their sin and I've got to go save them. No, it was a plan before the foundation of the world. Everything about the Old Testament points to Jesus. I've heard this illustration, and I, I may have used it here before, but I think it's, it's captivating. Um, there are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament. Depending on how you break it, it's just what you call a prophecy or what. There are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that point to a, to a Savior, to a Messiah who will come and save his people. Over 300. They span over 1,000 years. From about 1400 B.C. all the way down to about 400 B.C., they span over 1,000 years, and, they, and they, were, they were written in multiple places. The different writers of the Old Testament lived in different places in different times, and they were different types of people. But there are over 300 that span a 1,000 years, and they point to a Messiah. So the probability, all right, I don't know this number, but I'm going to try to do the best I can with it. The probability that all of these prophecies that span a thousand years, that span multiple authors, that span uh, various places around the world, the chances of all of those prophecies being fulfilled in one man is not one in a hundred, it's not one in a thousand, it's not one in a million. It is one in, take a one and then put 165 zeros behind it. I don't even know that number. I don't know if there is such a like, way that you could describe that number. That's the chances that all these prophecies in the Old Testament would be fulfilled in one man. It would have been one thing if they would have been fulfilled in 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or a thousand people, but we're saying that everything in the Old Testament pointed to Jesus. To give you a comparison, let's say you take North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia. And the same mathematician used this. He said, you line all three of those states, all the the entire states, you line them in silver dollars. Still don't know why he chose silver dollars, but you line them and you put them two feet deep and you paint one of them randomly red, just one. And you can put it anywhere, you can put it anywhere. And you take some man and you blindfold him and you put him somewhere in New England. All right. And then you catapult him down into one of these three states if he lives, when he lands, if he lives, then he searches around. He's blindfolded. He can't see the chances of him finding that one red silver dollar is one in ten, one in one with fifteen zeros after it. Like think about it, the chances of like us being blindfolded and finding that in here would be so slim. The fact is that Jesus, the idea that all those prophecies of the Old Testament would point. To him, and he fulfilled those is so preposterous. But Paul is trying to say, Look, it happened to him, and it was according to the scriptures. He wants us to know that. The second thing we see about um, Paul wanting to make clear of the resurrection is that Jesus appeared to people after his resurrection. What does it say in verse 5? And that he appeared to Cephas or Peter. Then he appeared to the twelve, and he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, he appeared to me. Paul is wanting to make clear. He says, look, I want to tell you that Jesus died in accordance with the scriptures, and he was buried and raised in accordance with the scriptures. Like it, Old Testament you know, prophesied that. And if it's not enough that you can say that over a thousand years and over 300 prophecies point to one man, if that's not enough, I want to tell you one other reason you should believe in the resurrection. And that's the fact that Jesus appeared to me. Jesus appeared to, to Peter. Jesus appeared to James. Jesus appeared to over 500 people. But there's a little phrase in there. That when I was 22 years old, that summer of 2010, God took that phrase and radically, honestly, radically changed my life with this phrase. Look at verse, look at verse 5. No, excuse me, verse 6. Before I even read it, sorry, he, 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 I, I want to tell you a little bit about Like This is somebody who is struggling in my faith, who doesn't know if God's word is entirely accurate, doesn't know if the resurrection is real, doesn't know if I'm even going to believe in the gospel, and God used this phrase. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers, this is verse 6, at one time. After that, if you like making notes or highlight, highlight this, most of whom are still alive. See, I believe that the Holy Spirit guided Paul to write these words, and he wrote these words, I don't think in a flippant way, I think it was to prove something to us. This little phrase says a lot, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. You see, Paul could say all day long, hey, Jesus appeared to me, and people could say, yeah, we don't believe that. Matter of fact, a couple years ago, we were going out and doing some invites for kids camp, and I ran across a guy in a neighborhood close to our area, and he, I knocked on the door, and he came outside, and we started talking about church and started talking about, um, like, inviting him to church, and if he had any grandkids or whatever that was. And he said, well, you know, he said, I've actually been doing some studying on my own. And I was like, all right, let's talk about it. He said, yeah, I I think for the past 2,000 years, the church has been getting it wrong. And I thought, this ought to be good. You know, this guy's about to give me some knowledge, you know. And and he said, yeah, I think we've been getting it wrong. He said, reason why I know this is because uh, one day I was in my I was in my room, and, and I felt this urge to go to my back bedroom, and when I did, all of a sudden, Jesus showed up, and I was like, like, literally, Jesus. He said, yeah, I, I remember saying, like, was it like a hologram? What kind of figure? And no, he said, no, I touched him, and he was like, Jesus was in my room, and he, he told me about this experience he had, and, and he started telling me that Jesus told him, hey, everything that, or a lot of things that were written in the Bible um, weren't true. I've come to tell you the truth, and I, I talked to the guy, and I said, let me ask you a question. I said, that, that's, that, that would be interesting if you had that kind of uh, interaction with, with Jesus, but you're saying what, what is said in here, uh, he told you is not right. And he said, yes, some of the things I said, oh, has anybody else that you're aware of around here, have, have they seen it, Jesus? He said, no. He said, nobody else got this knowledge but me. And I said, all right, well, um, the thing is, though, nobody else can verify what you're saying because only, only you saw it. He said, yeah, that's true, but, but it's true what happened. You see, what he was saying was that he had some kind of knowledge, but nobody else could verify. Paul is wanting to make clear that he didn't see just some kind of little vision that he was dreaming up because he said he appeared to Peter, he appeared to James, and he appeared to 500 people. When he says most of whom are still alive, he says, if you don't believe what I'm telling you, if you don't believe what I'm saying, these people are still alive. You need to go ask them. That's so huge because Paul is putting his testimony, Paul is putting what he believes about Jesus on the line so much that he says, if you don't believe me, go ask these people. And these people who are from various walks of life, these people who are from different places, these people of different ages, they will all give the same testimony. Yeah, Jesus appeared to me and he has changed my life. It'd be like me saying, there's a 800 pound gorilla in my my yard. You know, if, if, I, if I called somebody and said, hey, there was an 800-pound gorilla in the middle of Marion in my yard, and somebody says, you are so full of it. And I say, nope, my neighbor down the road saw it, and you can go down the street, and you can ask my other neighbor, you can ask people that I don't even know because I know they saw it, and you begin to go ask around, and those people say, yeah, I saw that same gorilla. What's that going to do? That's going to make my testimony even more sure than what you thought it was. So when Paul said, Jesus appeared not only to me, he also appeared to 500 people, most of whom are still alive, he's saying, they're going to tell you the same thing, which Validates what Paul is saying. He said, If you doubt me, fine. If you doubt me, fine. But when you begin to ask other people, you're going to begin to realize that what I'm saying about the resurrection of Jesus is true. Tim Keller made this statement. He said, If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to believe and accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like Jesus' teaching but it's on whether or not he rose from the dead. You see, everything about what what we believe about Jesus is so crucial based on the crucifixion. Because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we don't believe him to be anything but just a heroic figure. But if Jesus did come back from the dead, we have to believe what he said about himself because it shows us that he is God. The resurrection is the most crucial miracle in all of Scripture because without it, there is actually no good news. So you see that Jesus' appearance after the resurrection validates the gospel. We see that it's the primary mark of the gospel. We see our second truth this morning. The resurrection is the power that transforms lives. The resurrection is the power that transforms lives. Look at verse 9 and 10. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. Paul says, look, I am unworthy to be called a child of God because I was somebody who wasn't just kind of bad. I wasn't somebody who just slipped up and said a few bad things. I was somebody who actually killed Christians. I was somebody who tried to throw Christians in jail. I was somebody who was persecuting the church, but something happened one day when Paul was on the road to Damascus. Jesus met him where he was, and Jesus changed his life, not because of who Paul was, but because of who Jesus is. He changed his life, and Paul says, I'm unworthy. I'm unworthy to be called a Christian. But verse 10 says, but I am what I am by the grace, or he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul's not trying to make us feel sorry for him. He's saying, look, I'm the least of the apostles. I persecuted the church. I was a murderer. I was somebody who was a hater of Christ. I was somebody who didn't care about anybody else but myself. I was somebody who only looked out for me. But yet Jesus changed my life. That's what Paul is wanting us to know. God had no reason to show mercy on Paul. Paul wasn't a good person at all. But guess what? God doesn't show mercy to us based on if we're good or not. God has shown mercy and his grace to us only through his son Jesus when he died for us. And Paul's saying, look, I am the least of all the apostles. I deserve nothing. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. If the grace of God, if Jesus Christ could change Paul's life, and then not just on that one day when he was saved, but continually changed his life until the day that he passed. If the grace of God could change Paul's life, it can change yours. If the grace of God could change Paul, it can change you. Maybe you think, Adrian, you don't understand, man. I've messed up one or a thousand too many times. God doesn't want to have anything to do with me. I always honestly feel like that I'm at odds with God. Or well, guess what? You are at odds with God. But Romans 5.8 says that God showed his love for you and that while you were still a sinner, Jesus died for you. That's good news. That's powerful. Because there's nowhere that you can, there's nothing that you've done, there's nothing that you can do to earn or dispel God's forgiveness. Instead, it's given to you through Jesus. The the salvation of Paul shows that God is willing to save anybody, anywhere, anytime. Paul wasn't trying to say, look at me, look at who I am. He's saying, I'm definitely not what I could be, but I sure am different than what I used to be. There's many of you that could say that same thing this morning. Many we could, If we stood up and talked about what God has done in our lives to change us, we could probably be in here for days and nights talking about what God has done in us, what God is now doing through us because when you have an encounter with the resurrected Christ, you cannot walk away from that the same. When you trust Jesus to forgive you of your sin, there's no way that you can walk away from that and be the same person you were because when we understand that Jesus has saved us out of our sin, that compels us to live a life that glorifies him. If you think about John 4, when Jesus met the woman at the well, and and he goes and and he asked her for some water, and she says, "Uh, why are you asking me for water? As a matter of fact, what are you doing here? And he says, hey, why don't you go call your husband? And she says, I don't have one. Jesus says, that's right, you have five husbands, and the man you're with right now is not even your husband. And she's like, oh my goodness, this is a prophet, you need to tell me more. And that day, she believes in Jesus, and then she runs into town, and she tells all these people in town what Jesus has told her, and tells them all about what he has done, and they come down to him him and they believe simply because her life was so changed there's no way she could live differently take another example of Zacchaeus I see Zacchaeus Luke 19 you know he, he's he's a tax collector he just steals from people he swindles them but yet when he had an encounter with Christ and Jesus saved him he gave back so much more than what people had given him because there's no way he could be the same after Jesus had saved him you heard this baptism uh, testimony from Brady this morning You've heard some of the past few weeks. You'll be seeing more in the upcoming weeks about what God is doing in people's hearts to save them and transform them. And Paul wants us to know the resurrection not only has the, it it validates the gospel because Jesus is who he says he is. He's saying, look, by the grace of God, I am what I am. By God's grace, I am what I am. Many of you could stand up here this morning and simply say the same thing. There's something, though, that I want us all to walk away with this morning. To believers, this is, could be to believers or non-believers, but especially if, you're, if you walk with Jesus and you know him, one thing that this passage teaches us about Paul and about us is that we could sit and we could debate doctrine, we could debate theology, we could do all those things, and that's stuff that I enjoy, that's stuff that I love doing. We could do all of that. But the one thing, Greatest defense of the gospel, the one greatest evangelistic tool that you and I have is for people who don't know Jesus, Jesus to see our lives being transformed. You see, we could debate, and somebody could say, "Yeah, you believe Jesus died and rose again, or you believe that the Bible said this." Well, I don't believe that. But one thing is for sure: these people at this time could have chosen not to believe what Paul had said. They like could said, "We don't believe that there was a resurrection." We don't care what you say. The one thing they could not argue is that Paul's life had been changed. And students, when you walk into school or you walk into to college or teachers, you walk into um, your schools tomorrow or the next day, whenever you've started class. The one thing that people can't argue with about is what Jesus is doing in your life to change you. That's the greatest evangelism tool you have. People need to hear the gospel because the gospel literally means good news. But people, if they hear that from you but begin to see that your life has been radically changed and is being changed, that's the greatest evangelism tool that you could ever employ that shows the power of a changed life. When people, when unbelievers see somebody else's life changed and continue to be changed, Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you don't know Christ. You know that. You're like, man, I I don't know Jesus today. If I were to die today, I would not spend the rest of my eternity with him. Paul is wanting us to know in this passage one thing that, yeah, you're alienated with God right now, but because of the gospel, the good news that Jesus died on the cross for your sin and for you, when you trust in him, when you give your life to Jesus, Jesus, not only uh, are you saved from your sin and you're saved from the pit of hell, you are radically changed for the rest of your life into a person who desires to know Jesus and to glorify God. But you could be sitting here this morning and you've not been saved out of your sinfulness. You don't know this uh, saving power that Paul's talking about from the resurrection. But if we could talk to him this morning, I believe he would say, look, the only thing that you need to know is that I was somebody who deserved nothing but hell and nothing but death. But God changed me that day. We could go around this room, like I said, and various people could stand up and say, if you could see where I was, but then God saved me to see where I am now, you would know that that's not anything that I could have ever done. Only God could change me. And that's what I want us to know. For the unbelievers in the room, I need you to know that. You need the saving power of Jesus to change your life. You will never get it any other way. You will never reach ultimate joy through any other means. You won't get to spend eternity with God in heaven without Jesus in your life and as your Lord and as your Savior. So I'd ask if you'd bow your head this morning. Believers, I hope to you this passage has strengthened your faith in such a way that when you walk into your job tomorrow, you're emboldened by the fact that you don't serve a a dead body laying in a tomb. You serve a risen Christ reigning in heaven. I hope this passage has emboldened you. Unbeliever, if you don't know Jesus this morning, you can. You can have your sin washed away, wiped away. You can have your sin forgiven this morning and begin your new life with Christ. God, thank you for your love shown to us through Jesus. Lord, we praise you for being such a loving God. We praise you for being a just God that you would condemn sin, but instead of condemning us in our sin, you condemned it onto Jesus. Lord, we are grateful for that. God, I ask that you would take this passage and apply it to us in ways that you know that we need in ways that we can't, ways that I can't, Lord. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would move right now as we sing this song. God, thank you for your love. Thank you for your word, which is true, which is accurate, which is holy, which points us to your good news. In Jesus' name, amen.